Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hello, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're doing John Pocock. John Pocock died this past December at the age of 99. And I thought, you know, it's about time we did John Pocock. We're going to be a little bit sensitive because he's recently died. John grew up in New Zealand in the 1920s, receiving his undergraduate and master's degrees from what is now known as the University of Canterbury. He went to England for the PhD in history, receiving it at Cambridge in 1952. In the early 50s and 60s, he taught in New Zealand. In 1966, he came to the United States, initially to to, uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Then in 1974, he moved to John Hopkins in Baltimore, where he remained all the way until 2011. However, Pocock never really retired. He continued to publish articles until just a few years ago. His scholarship is consequently voluminous, richly detailed, and highly attentive to context. He specialized in the history of the history of political thought, not just the history of political thought, but the history of the way in which history itself is done. For instance, his Barbarism and Religion series is about Edward Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. It's not about the Roman Empire, it's about Gibbon, the historian, and it's not a mere biography of Gibbon, but an attempt in six volumes to situate Gibbon's work in its historical context. Gibbon wrote in the 18th century. So Pocock doesn't study Gibbon to understand the Romans. He studies Gibbon to understand 18th century Europe, the context that produced Gibbon's narrative about the Romans. For Pocock, most historians of political thought are insufficiently interested in the contexts they purport to study. Instead, these theorists are motivated by contemporary concerns, by the concerns of the present. They advance presentist readings. These readings are not good historical scholarship, but they tell us a great deal about the historian's own time and about their own concerns. This is a very different way of studying the history of political thought from what had gone before. In the 60s, Pocock argued that historians mostly approach their discipline on the basis of tradition. There was a canon of theorists that you read simply because these were the works that were part of the canon. They were handed down to you. These great works by great men had been interpreted many, many times before by many generations of historians. Each generation advanced a presentist reading motivated by their own concerns. The young historian was invited to follow in this tradition by interpreting the texts yet again in the service of their own interests, interests that were themselves the consequences of the particular period in which they wrote. So, if you read Machiavelli in the 1960s, you read Machiavelli for reasons that have to do with the politics of the 60s. You might be interested in the Italian Renaissance, but you're interested in it for 1960s reasons, and your reading of Machiavelli would therefore be a 1960s reading. It would be unique, but it would have little to do with the Italian Renaissance, and by the 1980s, there would be little 
reason for the next generation of scholars to be interested in it. The scholars of the 80s would instead read Machiavelli themselves for their own 1980s reasons, advancing their own 1980s reading. Each generation of historians gets to have its fun, but there's nothing you can call progress across the generations. Young historians get to develop their own readings of the canon, but there's little advancing beyond the canon, and the shelf life of the scholarship is generally quite short because within a generation's time, it no longer really is relevant to people. Instead, Pocock suggested that historians of political thought should take an interest in language, particularly in the ways political concepts are used in particular historical contexts. Now, to understand the way a theorist like Machiavelli uses particular terms, it would not be enough to read Machiavelli. What if Machiavelli's understanding of these terms is different from your understanding? Your understanding of the terms will influence the way you read Machiavelli. Your understanding comes out of your own context and the way words are used at the time when you're alive. It has nothing to do with when Machiavelli was alive or the way words were used when Machiavelli was alive. So, instead of studying Machiavelli alone, you read everything Machiavelli read. You immerse yourself in 16th century Florence. You try, in so far as you can, to make yourself conversant in the language of this particular time and place. This takes years. You have to read everything, even the stuff that isn't part of the canon and isn't thought to be very good. Many of these texts won't be in your local library. They may not even have been uploaded to online databases. You'll have to travel abroad to find them. You'll have to search through obscure libraries for texts. And as you can imagine, in the 60s and 70s and 80s in Pocock's prime, there was no internet. You had to go places. This meant that you would take a bunch of lovely trips abroad, often to the very places you most enjoy reading about. You know, if you want to learn about Florence, you've got to go there to where those texts are kept, the obscure, not very good texts, which are usually pretty close to the places in which they are found. You'll do all of this because you want to understand these ideas in their context. You don't just want to do a 60s reading of Machiavelli. You want to grasp 16th century Florence on its own terms. You want to make a history that will stand the test of time. Once you do that, you can then study how Machiavelli's ideas were picked up by other people. You can study how his ideas influenced the political thought of the English Civil War or the American Revolution. However, to do that, you'll have to read English and American theorists, too. And it won't be enough to just read the canon figures in English or American political thought. After all, you can't just assume that the Florentine political concepts remain unchanged to be used by those American and English theorists the same way that they were used in Florence. You'll have to study the reception of those concepts. And that means you'll have to read not just the big names in English and American political thought, You'll have to read everything they read. And oh, many of those texts, they won't be in your local library. You'll have to travel abroad to find them. You'll have to search through obscure libraries for texts. This will take you many, many years. But if you stick with it, eventually, this method allows you to produce something like the Machiavellian moment. In that work, Pocock traces a set of Republican ideas from 16th century Florence through to the English Civil War and the American Revolution. Pocock published it in 1975, 23 years after completing his PhD. 
By the time it came out, he was already at John Hopkins, the place he would remain for the rest of his career. Pocock's method seems arduous if you imagine that just one person has to do all of the work. No one person can become intimately familiar with every historical context, and this restricts the scope within which any given historian of political thought may work. This can seem grating to the ambitious young person who wants to use history to do philosophy, i.e. to develop their own view of political theory considered as a whole. But if you think about it from the point of view of the discipline rather than the individual historian, you can see its power. To do what Pocock is suggesting, we would need an enormous number of historians of political thought, each specialized in particular periods and places. This research agenda would create an enormous number of academic jobs. It would justify an enormous number of papers and books. It would make intellectual history a huge field. In recent decades, Pocock's method has been criticized for being too Eurocentric. Most intellectual historians work in the Western tradition. What about a global history of political thought? For Pocock, global intellectual history is a wonderful challenge if it is taken up with the same level of rigor. There should be an enormous number of intellectual historians, each specialized in particular parts of the world, focused on particular periods in those parts of the world. But if it becomes a different kind of thing, it might be a problem. What if it develops into a means of returning to the kind of historical work that prevailed when Pocock was young? What if, instead of reading specific works in their context, we start comparing prominent texts from China, India, the Middle East, and Africa to one another? Eventually, we would develop a global canon with a set of great works from all over the world, and historians would interpret that global canon in much the same way that people in generations past interpreted the old European canon. They would develop presentist readings based on their own concerns about, say, for instance, decolonizing the academy, and they would fail to understand these theorists on their own terms. Ironically, this would result in precisely the kind of Eurocentric readings a global history of political thought is meant to overcome. You would have Western political theorists interpreting texts from other parts of the world in ways motivated by their presentist, careerist agendas as academics based in particular Western, European, or American universities. This would bring us back to the generational readings of great texts that say more about the times in which they are written than they do about the theory, theorists and periods they're meant to be about. It would also make it possible to dramatically shrink the size of the field. You only need a handful of intellectual historians to create a set of leading generational readings of a small set of core texts. It only takes a tiny, tiny number of people to do that. Each one of them gets to be a big name for 20 years, and nobody else has any space really to do anything at all. A global history of political thought is thus both a tremendous opportunity for the history of political thought and a tremendous threat to it, depending on how we approach that global history methodologically. The method becomes really, really important. So this pits the ambitious individual theorist who wants to be a philosopher and develop a generation-defining view of the whole corpus 
against a large number of modest historians who are happy to work alongside one another in relative obscurity, advancing an understanding that they hope will be useful and valuable in a big picture way for a long period of time. If each is content, if each historian is content to focus on their own place and period, and no one claims to have a view of everything, intellectual history can grow ever larger and more populous, but it only takes a small number of ambitious people to disrupt all of this. How do we stop these ambitious wannabe philosophers? Well, Pocock seeks to convince us that this kind of ambition is wholly inappropriate and work that is marked by this ambition should be rejected as non-historical, that a firm line should be drawn between philosophy and history, and that people who are doing philosophy should not be admitted to the ranks of the historians. If we do that consistently, if we hold all intellectual history to extremely rigorous methodological standards, the whole discipline can be protected from this impulse to philosophize. Now, we've talked a little bit about some of the entanglements that get kicked up here, but I do want to draw your attention to another aspect of this that you know, sometimes comes in for some critique. So one of the questions we want to ask about this is, should we be so focused on terms in the first place? So if you notice, how this gets going is that Pocock starts focusing on language, right? He says that individual theorists are making discursive interventions. They're engaged in political action through the medium of language. So the words are the tools they're using to try to get people to think in the particular ways they want them to think, and then to act in the particular ways that they want them to act. So the words are themselves a form of political action and have to be interpreted not just as words, but as strategic interventions into a context, right? This puts an enormous amount of weight on the words and on the ways in which the audiences are going to receive the words, the effects the words will have on the people who will hear them. And that means that the way the words are understood in the time and place becomes very, very central. And it puts a lot of agency in the theorist because the theorist is making a discrete intervention with words to try to bring about some effect. But this linguistic turn, this focus on words and the way they are understood, was itself a feature of Pocock's context. This linguistic turn happened in many different areas of theory and philosophy during the middle and back half of the 20th century. You might say that this focus on language is itself to some degree driven by the context of the late 20th century, that it's not a purely neutral way of engaging in the history of political thought. You might make that kind of argument. You might also make the argument that the focus on language potentially narrows our ability to think about causes and conditions. So for instance, at the same time that Pocock was making this argument for a focus more on terms and how they're understood in their contexts, you also had a tradition of Marxist historiography running alongside all of this. And the Marxists thought that instead of focusing on language and ideas, you should focus on the material economic situation that gives rise to the class structure and class interests that tend to shape and produce the work. So for them, more could be learned from what wasn't said and what was there in the material conditions, that the saying is potentially papering over. The saying becomes potentially an ideological carapace for distracting attention away from what's really going on in politics. So for those Marxists, instead of these 
uh, speech acts or these uh, uh, discursive acts being the action and the substance of politics, they are a way of avoiding or legitimating or justifying or covering over the substance of the politics, which mainly occurs in a different space through different means other than language. So is there a limit to our ability to understand the history of ideas if we are viewing these things as the discursive acts of particular individuals? Now, I'm not going to suggest that Pocock doesn't have any kind of response to this. Of course, the context, to understand the context, you do have to understand what's going on. And it's not as if Pocock uh, isn't interested in the material situation or in what's going on in terms of action. But there is an emphasis here on language, and I do want to raise the possibility that the emphasis on language is to some degree a product of our times and not necessarily uh, a straightforward improvement or form of progress in the field. Uh, and I do want to see what Alex thinks about that. I want to see if Alex thinks that the emphasis on language, is that a neutral move uh, that just improves the quality of the scholarship because that is, you know, in point of fact, the medium in which theorists are operating in? Or is that uh, not a neutral move, something which treats, uh, which reifies in some way the discursive interventions that actually have potentially an ideological character? Uh, did you have a view about that? And if, if not, you know, anything else that you found interesting, I'd love to hear about. Um, maybe we could explain more what makes something language focused as opposed to what came before it. We've done a lot of postmodernism language games recently, but I'm still unsure of, because the ancients also would have, or not, would they have traced the etymology of words or things like that? Yeah. So to give you a little bit of a comparison point, you know, certainly for Pocock, the kind of immediately preceding view would be something like a Straussian view. We've not done Leo Strauss. Maybe we will at some point. Um, but the kind of Straussian view is that when a theorist is writing a text, that the theorist is not writing the text merely to contribute to some parochial nearby debate, but is instead writing for everybody. He has written the text for posterity and therefore has a message that transcends the context. So if you think in that way, then the ideas that are in the text are there to be picked up and used again and again by new generations of people in new ways. Uh, those people might be on the one hand, returning to an original interpretation that is is actually there. So you can take a kind of very, very strongly uh, esoteric angle here and say that there is a hidden meaning in the text that is there to be discovered. And you can argue uh, perennially that each generation comes back to that same one meaning and finds its way back to that meaning through its own generational means, but that the meaning itself is constant across time and transhistorical in nature. Or you can argue that each generation comes up with new readings of the text and those new readings have power in their own times and places and therefore are uh, relevant politically as interventions in those times and circumstances. So for instance, when you talk about the reception of a text, the reception often involves some set of people, say English or American theorists, picking up and in some way uh, using Machiavelli in a bit of a presentist way, in a way that isn't fully rooted in the Florentine context, but is in some ways influenced by their own concerns, right? Yet they're able to do something with Machiavelli in their own times. It, he gives them some ideas that they then deploy. So while what they're doing with Machiavelli is not necessarily perfectly faithful to the original Machiavelli, 
their developments of or uses of Machiavelli empower them to potentially engage in some form of political action themselves. So Pocock argues that can be studied by not treating those uh, English or American theorists as historians, but treating them as philosophers who are deploying or making use of, or political actors who are deploying or making use of Machiavelli. For Pocock, what those people are doing is, is potentially interesting political theory work, but it's not history. Even if they say they're doing history, if they say they're writing something about Machiavelli, that isn't actually what they're doing. They're engaged in a different kind of activity. That other kind of activity is valuable, provided it doesn't masquerade as history. Right? If everybody only does intellectual history and no one tries to use political concepts to do things, you know, then there's nobody to write intellectual history about except insofar as you're going to write it about the historians themselves and about the development of history. And at that point, the whole thing becomes a little bit self-contained. So there's some use here for other kinds of approaches to political theory apart from the approach of the historian. But for Pocock, what's important is to carve out a specific niche for the historian to show how the historian's relationship to these texts is different from, distinct from these other approaches. So you can go do philosophy in a philosophy department, but that's not history, and you shouldn't be doing it in a history department. And the argument from Pocock is that when these philosophers started treating their philosophy as history, when they argued that their use of these, say, ancient texts was uh, faithful in some way to the original intentions of the author, when they claimed that there was historical validity to their use of the texts, at that point, they began to blur the boundary between history and philosophy in a way that is undermining of history, right? So if you just go and, and pick up and use Machiavelli to develop your own view, and you go, well, that's what I've done. I've picked up and used Machiavelli to develop my own view. It's inspired by Machiavelli in some ways, but it's my own view. You know, that's honest. But if you go, actually, I've discovered the true meaning of Machiavelli, which was always already there in the text. And you deceive yourself into the idea that your presentist reading, which is motivated by your own concerns, is a historically faithful reading of Machiavelli. Then at that point, you've called your philosophy history and you've produced terrible history. Whatever the quality of the philosophy is from Pocock's point of view, you've produced terrible history that's enormously misleading because you've deployed history in a propagandistic way to try to insert your philosophical ideas into the understanding of Machiavelli and in some way to try to capture Machiavelli for yourself. So the you're assuming if you're a newbie and you approach any text, then unless, yeah, you're going to read it philosophically. So you're just going to look for coherence. So you're just going to think that um, if, it, if it's coherent, this is why they thought and acted this way, as opposed to a specialist who would say, no, that term means that they're a lawyer. That means that this institution does this, you know, very something that's not intellectual, something that's more based in a, a concrete relationship. Yeah, something that would require a lot of background knowledge about the context. And you run into this all the time when you have a first year student who's writing about something. They'll often get a get a concept wrong because they will be interpreting it in the way that that concept is understood now. And they won't have the background knowledge about the historical period to get what that word means in the specific instance in which it's being used. So generally in that situation, you know, the teacher will point out 
actually, there's this background knowledge you'd need to have to understand that line. And here's here's that background knowledge. Right. But if you have the view that you don't need background knowledge to understand these texts because these great texts are are interfacing with truth itself and they're transcendental in character. If you're not careful, you can deceive yourself into thinking that your presentist view is this transcendental view, and then it becomes a way of flattering yourself that actually these geniuses from history, they agree with you, and you're a genius like them, or you've in some way interfaced with what's genius in the work. Uh, That's the conceit that Pocock is heavily militating against. Now, if you read these people purely as an inspiration point and you do that self-consciously going, I don't know exactly what Machiavelli thought, but this is how I've been inspired by what he's saying. Then you're not stealing valor from Machiavelli and trying to dominate the interpretation of him for your own purposes. You're just saying, I read Machiavelli and he inspired me to have these thoughts. Are they interesting? Maybe they are. And the thoughts are standing on their own terms, on their own merits is either interesting or not interesting. But if you say, I have the one true correct interpretation of Machiavelli, and it's entirely inspired by your own concerns, now you're you're actually trying to steal valor from Machiavelli. You're not just positing your own ideas and going, this was inspired by reading Machiavelli. You are trying to take over Machiavelli. And you're not to do that. That's not permitted. Yeah, I don't have enough examples where I've actually read a text and then had uh, a teacher say, oh, that term actually means something else. But I have enough faith that it's true and it's exciting to imagine that, oh, you could imagine the past completely differently if you just saw one word as coming from a different institution. So I would lean towards agreeing with Pocock that you can't do history without a specialist. But I would also like, I also like say how he says that, um, you know, there's not just one type of uh, historical specialist. Like to be a historian is quite different from what it meant in the ancient days. Even though they had specialists, they they would no longer be considered specialists by modern criteria. Yeah, and so that's another thought. You know, something like economic history might be a form of history, but different from intellectual history, or the history of thought. Right, the history of thought might gain something from interfacing with economic history. But perhaps the history of thought is something different and distinct from economic history. And therefore, Marxist historiography, as it tended to be applied to history of thought, should instead be treated as economic history and then raised as a potential uh, site from which you might critique the history of thought. You might go, well, what about these concerns that come out of economic history? And you might bring together a historian of thought and an economic historian and have them, you know, bounce stuff off each other. Those would be uh, different approaches to history, different focuses in terms of what you care about in history, but they would both be recognizably history because they would be interested in you know, genuinely what happened. You know, The economic historian wants to know genuinely how the economy worked, at least in principle, at least in theory. Sometimes you have you know, bad historiography, which takes a particular kind of theory of history, you know, Marxist theory of history, and forces particular situations from the past to fit into that theory. You know, we talked about this a little bit when we did the economic history of the Roman Empire a few episodes back, how your contemporary concerns can affect how you read economic history. The same thing is true here for the history of ideas. Your contemporary concerns affect how you read it. Uh, But I I think that they're 
is a space for saying history shouldn't just be about ideas and concepts, while at the same time recognizing that there is some value in studying that. It's a, yeah, it's interesting how in the ancient times, if if you weren't connected to the institution that preserved the records, the canons of acts, then you weren't historian. So you could be aware of a discontinuity with the past. You could have ideas about it. But if you're not a member and you don't transmit the actions that are recorded, then you're not a historian. I found that quite interesting. Also, the fact that in the past, apparently, in the ancient times, they recorded actions, but not context as well. So it's just very much literally a canon of of things that happened without without examining what the past did to the present. It's like just fitting it into one big narrative and, you know, the empire, the Marxist theory of history, one just grand scheme that doesn't change. Yes, these uh, narratives of history are very common in modernity and much less common in antiquity. So when you interpret antiquity through one of these more modern theories of history, you are necessarily going to be applying a theory which developed out of industrialization and the rapid change that occurred during that time, and therefore the notions of progress that come out of that rapid change. You're going to be deploying those theories in a context where people would not have had those kinds of ideas because the change that they would have seen would have been slower or not in that uh, obvious technological, industrial, progressive direction. So there's going to be some discontinuities there. Now, if you acknowledge that you are not suggesting that this is how people at the time thought about it, but you think nonetheless something like this might have been going on. If you're honest about what you're doing, then it can still be done as an honest exercise in trying to think about a period in relation to some concepts that come from somewhere more contemporary or from somewhere else, right? But when you start to to suppose that people in the past thought like people in the present or had access to the same concepts or same ideas that you have access to, that's where it starts to get fishy from Pocock's point of view. You know, the Straussian who really thinks that there are a set of ideal ideas here that the terms relate to that we are also thinking about because they're in the realm of the ideal and our terms are also attempts to think about that. If you have that kind of view, it very much changes the way all of this works. These are really different ideas about what language is. You know, does language correspond with an ideal, like a platonic form, or is language highly contextual? Now, you might think that language should co correspond with an ideal, but it is contextual. Or you might think that it should be contextual, but oftentimes people use it to correspond to an ideal. You can get into complicated hybrid versions of this. I guess I'm confused because before the 1750s, Pocock says that history was still pre-modern because they didn't have historicism. Does that bear on what we're talking about? Yeah, that's this idea that they didn't have grand narratives of history, of historical change. But I thought history where history is an agent or an actor. This idea that history has a direction to it, that history is itself a force, that doesn't exist until modernity. I, I thought historicism is more just that every object has a past or all things are conditioned by history. So right by history, history the force. It couldn't, but it 
Hmm. So, so once you have history as a force, you have things like like before that you couldn't have a discussion of Rome, the city, and the citizen as something that develops morally or you know metaphorically becomes successful. I don't understand why that's related to history as a force. Well, you can talk about the specific things that happened, right? And Machiavelli does this in the Discursi, uh, in his Discourses on Livy, right? He talks about the specific things that the Romans did and how the Romans acquired their territory and how the Romans became what they became, right? But Machiavelli doesn't suggest that there's some kind of historical process, like, for instance, modernization, that Rome was undergoing. It's not that all of this is a response to historical forces or pressures. It's that in these specific situations, these are the things the Romans did. These were the things that resulted from that. These were the consequences of those specific actions. But there's no meta narrative about history there. Um, yeah, I'm just still confused about what makes it historicist apart from yeah, just putting... I thought, if anything, you get less big scheme, really, because everything leads towards postmodernism in a way. Because you're taking everything as, oh, everything has its own unique context, as opposed to everything is part of well, one context. That, that's the turn that Pocock is making here. So one of the things that Pocock is, is opposing is kind of Whig theories of history that suggest that these notions of progress or history that came out of modernity have to be applied transhistorically and have to be transhistorically valid, right? So to use a very straightforward example, you know, of a Karl Marx's theory of history, right? You start off in a primitive condition, you develop into an agrarian feudal society, then that feudal society produces a, a bourgeois you know, capitalism, then that bourgeois capitalism uh, develops to a point where it becomes possible to transition into socialism and so on. If you have that kind of view, then it becomes possible to place different societies or different contexts at different points in a developmental process, a historical process, right? And all of those points, wherever they are, they're subject to that historical process and undergoing historical development. But prior to the idea of that historical process or theory of development, the people living in those contexts could not have thought of themselves as part of that process. That process only became seemingly apparent to the moderns who were operating in, say, the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries and seeing from their point of view the changes that had occurred across time and then coming up with trends and attributing those trends to historical forces. But none of those forces would be apparent to someone operating in the earlier contexts for whom the this directionality does not seem to be there, right? So you can make up this kind of theory. But if you suppose that the people who were writing in antiquity or in the Middle Ages thought about things in this way, you would be wrong. Now, a lot of Marxists say that there was a lack of consciousness of history in antiquity precisely for this reason. You know, so it's not as if uh, Marxist historiography denies that this or attributes to ancient theorists an understanding of these forces. Quite the contrary. There is uh, generally a view that people could not have been conscious of these forces given their material situations. Uh, but you, know, you, can, you can imagine someone who's not very sophisticated who might 
have a very uh, brutalist understanding of this and just assume that, say, Plato, for instance, understood himself as as an aristocrat in a class structure that is, you know, uh, straightforwardly you know, Marxist in character, that he must have had some understanding of this. That's generally not the view that Marxists have, but you might have a student who thinks that way. Uh, or you might have a student who thinks that when the concept of liberty is being used or the concept of democracy is being used, that these theorists know full well what liberty or democracy mean for us and are talking about it in the same way that we're talking about it, that democracy or liberty means for them what it means for us. It's generally an undergraduate student mentality that people will lose as they get trained out of it. But you can find some Americans in particular who tend to Americanize the history of political thought and tend to view uh, theorists as in some way secretly agreeing with us or secretly having a view which happens to correspond with our own view. This is something that when I was doing my master's at University of Chicago, I sometimes encountered. I took a class there on Plato where there was uh, a classicist who insisted that Plato can't think anything that strikes us as obviously wrong or ridiculous because Plato is a genius. Plato is one of the great men of, of history. So therefore, Plato must have a really brilliant view. And so if we see things in Plato that we don't agree with or we think are wrong, we must have misinterpreted Plato. Of course, the effect of this, because we're coming at it from our own contemporary position, is to try to find a Plato that agrees with the contemporary position, to try to find a version of Plato that can be made to apologize for contemporary liberal democracy as it exists. And that means any instance in which Plato appears to critique democracy or to critique freedom or what have you, this has to in some way be uh, rationalized away through a process of esoteric interpretation. Well. Pocock does mention that Adam Smith said modern historiography is not just legitimating the present, but any any influence of the debate. So it could be to criticize it also. But ancient historiography did not do this. Yes. Uh, if you look at you know, Adam Smith is another person who had a theory of history and a notion of what history is doing. Right? And Gibbon has this. Gibbon thinks about the Roman Empire through this kind of lens. And that's what makes Gibbon's interpretation of Roman history a little bit weird relative to the way the Romans themselves would have thought about it. The Romans themselves would have seen that they had all kinds of problems, but they would have had different ways of thinking about those problems from you know, this notion of, of uh, you know, the particular notions that Gibbon uh, latches onto. You know, uh, for instance, this idea that religion is is some kind of competing force with political engagement, you know, that's not something that is going to come very naturally to the Romans. Yeah, you know, the Romans might be concerned that maybe the the gods have abandoned them because they have been following Christ instead of making the appropriate pagan sacrifices. You know, that's an argument that Augustine addresses in the City of God. You know that. Uh, the reason that Rome was sacked is that the gods are not being appropriately honored. But that's very different from the argument that religion itself has become an impediment to political engagement. Uh, however, Gibbon in his own time, in Gibbon's period, religion was viewed as this kind of mystical force that disrupted enlightenment, that there was a classical enlightenment that was disrupted by religion. And then with the demise of religion, in the 18th century or the qualifying of it, you could reopen the possibility of engagement with you know, uh, science. 
And so this way of thinking of religion as, as a disruptor, it's not a Roman way of thinking about religion. It's an 18th century way of thinking about religion. I found it interesting when you said that Plato might not have seen himself as a member of a class, a class dominant, a dominant class. Well, not the kind of class that you would uh, you posit in a kind of Marxist scheme, right? Because for you know Plato, uh, you know there are distinctions drawn between the best and the rich, you know, between aristocrats and oligarchs. You know, that's not a distinction that is going to be drawn in. Uh, Oh, they were thinking in terms yeah. of virtue, not commerce. Yeah, oftentimes they're thinking in terms of, of virtue with classes or in terms of drive, right? So Plato will talk about different kinds of souls that are driven toward different things. Yes. You know, so this can have a kind of psychological angle to it. Now, there are some interesting economic valences. And for what it's worth, I do think that Plato is more interested in economic materiality than, than people generally realize. In the Phaedrus in particular, he gives a list of different kinds of souls in a descending order of their uh, uh, philosophical capability. And he gets very you know, specific about certain kinds of jobs that he thinks uh, enable or don't enable you to think in terms of the good. And generally, as you go further down the line, you have people whose crafts are less concerned with the good in a general sense and in a more particular sense. So you start with the philosopher who's interested in the good in itself. Then you go to the statesman who's interested in the good of the city. You know, then you might come down to, you know, the uh, the doctor who's interested in the good of the whole body. Then you've got the farmer who's interested in satisfying one of the appetites, but not in the body as a whole. And you can kind of come down. But there is an emphasis there that the material position, the job or function or role or craft that you perform has something to do with your understanding of reality. So I think there is some materiality to that. It's not purely an account of souls, but some people who lean heavily on the soul aspect will view this as an antagonism with, with a more materialist account. Uh, the interesting thing is that there's a lot of different stuff to work with in the dialogues in terms of developing a view there. It's not as if there's one particular view that is obviously the right one. But a lot of people who are reading Plato can go and look for what they want to find in Plato and try to have their Plato say what they want. And as long as you're not acting as if you have unmediated access to Plato's intentions, or as if your understanding of these terms straightforwardly, you know, enables you to, to understand Plato. You know, if you're honest and open about it, that's fine as a philosophical exercise or as a political exercise. But if you start to pass that off as history, that's where the trouble comes in here. Uh, but yes, you're right. Pocock is is in a kind of uh, the vanguard of a postmodern move that's more focused on the specificity of discourses and contexts, that's in the specificity of different diverse language games operating in different places, rather than one unitary process, right? If you think that there is one unitary process, as the moderns tend to think, then you can start to talk about where different people are, are, sit are seated in that process and what their position in that process allows them to understand or to grasp about reality. And you can make the argument that people at earlier stages in the process can't grasp as much as people in later stages. And therefore, your later position gives you the ability to rewrite their history and to re uh, uh, contextualize them on the basis of what you understand from this new standpoint. 
And that's often the way that uh, you kind of Whig theories of history work or liberal or Marxist theories of history often involve some recontextualization on the basis of what is now understood that what couldn't have been understood then or wasn't understood then. But the, uh, you know, the, the Straussian has a view that in some ways is even more classical than that insofar as the Straussian argues that all of these people are trying to grapple with God or with ultimate reality and that therefore when you engage with their terms, you are engaging with terms that are meant to track ideals and therefore they're the same ideals and therefore your engagement with the terms is perfectly legitimate and valid. And you are actually engaging with what they had to say and with what they intended. But you can see how that goes off the rails. That's why I told that story about, you know, the University of Chicago experience, you know, where you become convinced that if anything appears to be wrong with the work, it must be because you've misinterpreted it. Well, no, it could just be that the usually it seems with ideals that no one can ever get them because they're ideals. So even though it's constant throughout history, the ancients were no better than the moderns at doing it. Well, the, the Straussians will argue that, well, you know, it's very difficult that there are a certain number of great men who have produced great works. This is how they justify the small number of canon texts, that only a small number of people are truly great minds and only a small number of the books that they wrote are truly great. Many of their other books are lesser works that aren't as good, that don't have it. But these truly great books can only be understood by a small number of people. And most people who try to read them will not get them and will fail to appreciate what's great about them. And you know that they're great because they've been passed down by the people who are the bearers of the tradition, who are able to understand that they are great works. They may not themselves be able to write a great work, but they can understand that the work is great. Right. So you have the people who write the great works and even they only write a, only a small percentage of their works are great. Then you have the people who can understand those people and understand that the works are great, even though they can't produce a great work. And then you have the set of people beneath that who can neither produce a great work nor understand one. And that's the bulk of people who come through the university. If you see one of them who actually has some capacity to understand the great work, then you earmark them for grad school and you pick them up and you bring them into this tradition. But it becomes an esoteric tradition of following a small number of great people and their, and their very great works. That's the Straussian. It's a little bit stylized and a little bit stereotypical, but that's the, you know, iteration of, of Straussianism that Pocock in particular does not like, uh, and these guys don't like. The Cambridge School guys find that to be not history, not good history. But aren't they doing a similar thing because they're saying you need such a high standard of knowledge of the context, so you need to be a, unable to understand great minds and a great amount of work compared to... Well, the, the key differences is that Pocock and the Cambridge School theorists are not just interested in the great texts from the great minds. They're interested in everything that those people read. So they're interested in even texts that are not good because those texts nonetheless will give you information about how terms were used or understood. What was the ordinary way in which the terms are understood? Pocock at many points will emphasize the value of letters, right? Letters that are written by the theorist to other people. Those letters show you what kinds of people that theorist interacted with, what kind of work that theorist read, uh, how the theorist was talking to other people in a more colloquial way can give you insight into what that theorist was doing in their context, right? The idea here is that the theorist is just another person 
who is stuck in a situation just like anybody else and is trying to navigate that situation. So the theorist is not this transhistorical genius, but it's just somebody in the situation, not altogether different from you, right? Not altogether different perhaps a bit different because the historian's interest is not as politically active as the interest of the of the person that they're studying, right? Machiavelli was trying to do something. The historian is not interested in doing something necessarily, but in just understanding Machiavelli. So the historian is not like Machiavelli. The historian is engaged in some other project that involves reading Machiavelli, but is, it's not an attempt to be Machiavelli or to be like Machiavelli. In contrast for the Straussian, the goal is to understand the work and if possible, if you're really special, to generate a work that is of that rank or near that rank. So the goal of the, of the Straussian is to be the theorist that is being studied or to come as close as possible to having the same understanding that that theorist had. The uh, the historian is interested in the work for a different reason from the person that they're studying. Because the, the historian on, Skinner, on a, a, a kind of Skinner or Pocock view is uh, there to understand what the person was trying to do, not to do the same thing themselves. Because they can't do the same thing because it's a whole different situation. And because as a historian, they're not interested in doing in that same kind of way. So they're depoliticized versus the Straussian who's political because they want to, simply because they're practical or, or they're non-historical, they're traditional. Is that a better word than political? I, I think the term that, that would be used by Pocock would be philosophical. They're interested in doing philosophy and whether that philosophy is to be politicized is a separate question, but it's certainly different from doing history, which is, is for Pocock about understanding why people act the way they do in their situations. Although doesn't Pocock talk a little bit about blending the disciplines separate of uh, philosophy and history? A little bit. So that you lead, you start have history mostly, but you still have a tradition of history, which is its own specialized philosophical language. Yes, uh, history requires its own language to be able to evaluate things in historical terms. And so there has to be some work done to get clear what those terms are or how they ought to be understood. And that attempt to drill down how we ought to talk about history still involves trying to decide what to do in, in a way that is a little bit transcendental, right? Because you're trying to say the historian in general should I think in a particular way or act in a particular way or interpret texts with particular values or principles in mind. In trying to establish a methodology for history, there is something a bit philosophical about that that can't really be escaped. So while the historian is not to be generally interested in doing philosophy, if the historian is to be armed against the philosophization of history, the way to do that is to develop a robust methodology, and that requires some level of philosophical capacity on the part of the historian to be able to discern what counts as real history from what is some other practice. So there's a little bit of scope left there, but it's just a little bit. In general, um, just to evaluate the whole approach, 
I'm asking maybe, is, have you seen any examples where it's gone a bit, it's become useless to look, just go so deep into the context? Because you always want more information, but at the same time, if you're just collecting information, but it's not sorted correctly, you could just go on forever and you're not finding the destination. You need a compass. Well, I think if you are someone who wants to do history in Pocock's sense of that term, it will be obvious to you how all of this work is, is valuable. You know, uh, or very nearly all of it, because if you are genuinely interested in understanding situations and and uh, historical si contexts for their own sake, you just want to know what happened and what people did and why they did it. You just want to know. Then even the most obscure journal article about somebody's letters and you know Marx's relationship with his wife or you know uh, uh, you know any anything uh, no matter how obscure it might be or how seemingly not relevant to the the high ideas you know in the text you know what was marx's relationship like with each of his children you know, uh, marx and engels who did they who did they hang out with who were their friends at different points in their lives right uh, who did they write letters to and and what were the contents of those letters you can get very 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 specific about all of this and you can take a, a, a extremely fine-tooth comb interest in the life and times of a person. Uh, and historians genu genuinely find great value in that, view this as intrinsically valuable. The issue is if you are interested in political theory for non-historical reasons, then a lot of this will seem constraining to you. If you're interested in political theory because you want to learn something for the purposes of acting today, that's a very different purpose to have. Uh, if you are interested in doing political theory because you're interested in figuring out what you think, that's a very different purpose to have. If you're reading other people to clarify your own thoughts about a matter, very different purpose. I think that there's nothing wrong with being interested in political theory for multiple different purposes. Part of the function of, of creating separate disciplines is to allow different methodologies to flourish alongside one another. So the historical methods can be deployed in history and the philosophical methods can be deployed in philosophy and political strategy can be emphasized and, and a possibility of political uptake can be emphasized in say political science and so on and so forth. You, know, you can even read political theory texts for purely literary value in, in a discipline like, say, English or classics, right? But each of these disciplines is interested in these texts for somewhat different reasons. And if you start to throw these reasons together, it starts to get blurry why you're there and what you're there to do. And then these different intentions start to compete with each other in ways that crowd out space for one another, right? If there isn't a place for the historians to do history, if history has been colonized by philosophy, then anyone who tries to do historical work will be told, well, what's the point of that? Why should we care about that? It doesn't tell us something about, you know, fundamental ideals, or it doesn't tell us something about politics, right? But conversely, if you start to insist that all the philosophers think and act like historians, then you would also crowd out space for a different kind of activity. The disciplinary boundary has a certain use in allowing these different forms of inquiry to go on side by side without having to compete directly against each other, provided that there is support for both history and philosophy and political science all at the same time 
in these different universities. Part of the trouble recently is that there's been a contraction of the humanities. There are fewer people, especially in the United States, who are going into humanities disciplines. And this results in there being less free space for people to decide, do I want to be a historian? Do I want to be a philosopher? Do I want to be a political theorist? It means that there's less room to decide what you care about because in general, the space for doing your own highly specific thing is contracting. And therefore, there's increased pressure on people to do a lot of different things. These days in the States, you know, to be hired as a political theorist, you often have to do some empirical political science, you know, some empirical stuff alongside that so that you can teach more material to make yourself more employable, or you have to do some comparative or some IR. You know, these days, you know, maybe in a philosophy department, it's not enough to do political philosophy. You might be expected to do some other stuff too. You know, and similarly in history, it might not be enough to do you know, intellectual history. You might be expected to do you know, other, other kinds of history as well. And as you start to force theorists to be generalists and to teach wide varieties of stuff, this takes away their time and space for becoming fully specialized in the specific things in which they're interested. Uh, and this can be a threat to the autonomy and the intellectual freedom of people in, in a subtle market-driven way that isn't you know, someone straightforwardly telling you, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, but just through that subtle mechanism of, well, you won't be as employable if you're too narrowly focused on specific things. You, you might not be viable as an academic if what you do is, doesn't speak to certain general or wide concerns that are important to the people who, say, put up grant money. You know, particularly if you're someone who needs to go on trips to obscure archives in different parts of the world, you need some funding for those trips, right? So then you have to explain to the funder why your history project that's about learning about, say, uh, did Karl Marx know his third, you know, his, his first cousin and what was his relationship like with the first cousin? This is completely hypothetical. But, you know, something really obscure. If you're really interested in something quite obscure, can you convince a funder that history itself has value, that history itself is important for its own sake without some kind of political or philosophical payoff. Well, part of the struggle of someone like Pocock was to carve out a space for that kind of work, even the, the obscure stuff, even the stuff that might seem not to have any kind of obvious political use, to carve out a space for that. And then I think another part of his career, and one that we haven't gotten into as much today because we've been more focused on methodology and the way disciplines are constructed, is the actual substance of what he had to say about Machiavelli, about republicanism as a body of thought. This idea that he had that, that republicanism was a separate and distinct body of thought from, say, modern liberalism, and that you could talk about it as a competing influence. And we could you know, potentially still find that that tradition exists today in certain forms by tracing it with a fine-toothed comb rigorously, we could still find bits and pieces of, it, pieces of it around today. Now, when you start to get into that bits and pieces of it around today, that's when you have to start to wonder if maybe there is a political project ultimately at the end of all of this for Pocock, and that might be a Republican political project, an attempt to revive a certain kind of Republicanism that he's been intent on tracing. And maybe there was uh, an attempt to engage in political action by doing that. And when you start to think in that way, then there's this question about whether this whole emphasis on 
historicizing and context and uh, language, whether that is itself another vehicle for engaging in the same kind of project that previous generations of historians engaged in, that being one of trying to find a way to use the history of political thought to affect political change in the here and the now. Maybe the history of political thought is a way of laundering that through a process which makes that more uh, obscure and difficult to follow. Maybe it is itself a way of being esoteric. It's, but it's weird because if you if you ask those questions too seriously for too long, then it cuts against the potential methodological advantages of this as a project for a historian. If it, if it was concerned with being esoteric, wouldn't it be less concerned with influencing reality and just being like impartial, distant, kind of yeah, you can never use it for your own purposes type thing. Well. Sometimes in saying you can't use this for your own purposes, your point is that, of course, you can. You know, oh, yeah. To be esoteric you you and really hide it is, is to say, well, we're going to conceal the way in which you can use this to try to propagate a certain politics. Um, itself is a vehicle for propagating it. One of the issues with, say, the postmodern world is that any straightforward position you take will be highly controversial. So there's an attempt to try to get some sort of neutral position that stands outside, right? But of course, there is no neutral position which actually stands outside per you know, the parameters of postmodernism, right? So any attempt to get outside is just an attempt to conceal the degree to which you remain inside. It's an attempt to kind of pull off a myth, right? So the Straussian myth is, I think, a little bit more obvious, where the Straussians go, there's a set of great minds who are talking about uh, ideas that are transcendental, that are valuable and valid in all times and all places. And by reading these texts, we can interface with these ideas, right? That's an attempt to say, here's a neutral plane, the realm of ideas that stands outside. Now, that seems to be obviously to people uh, weighted in all kinds of ways. Why is it only a you know, certain number of Western European canon theorists who are in this tradition? Who have written the great works? How come nobody else gets to be in there who's from any other part of the world? How come they haven't written any great works? What, do other parts of the world not produce great minds and great works? That seems pretty pretty silly, doesn't it? And then, you know, why is it that all of your interpretations of these great minds just happen to coincide so often with you know, ordinary common sense consensus uh, liberal centrism? Why is that the dominant interpretation that tends to come out of that school? Uh, you know, or maybe it's not liberal centrism. Maybe it's a kind of soft conservatism. Uh, but whichever it might be, you know, why is it that, that that's the, the general direction? Well, the Straussian will go because that's what's true. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe actually the whole methodology is weighted in some way that it always tends to produce those outputs, right? So maybe you want to come up with a, a, a smarter way of trying to get people to think the way that you want them to think. And your way of doing that is to adopt the posture of the historian who is interested only in what went on in the past and is explicitly not interested in trying to do politics today. But of course, if you were interested in doing politics today and you wanted a cover that would give you the status of a neutral third party expert, that would be a very effective way of doing that. But I don't want to just, you know, condemn or, or suggest that that's all that there is. I mean, for one, it could be a useful way of doing it. Some of the ideas that come out of Pocock and Skinner are very interesting and would be, you know, could be useful or, or, or quite valuable to take up as ideas in their own right. 
it might also be the case that those who take up those ideas as valuable in their own right are engaged in a different project. Maybe the historians gen genuinely are interested in the history and the rest of us are just picking up that stuff and playing with it for our own purposes rather than sharing in what was their concealed purpose the whole time. You know, uh, a lot of people have gotten interested in, in Skinner and Pocock and in their conceptions of, uh, you know, Repub of you know, the Republican institutions and, and processes and citizenship as a category and so on. A lot of those people may not have the same intention. Maybe it really is the case that they were just interested in doing history and it's everybody else who wants to do something else with it. Uh, or maybe maybe they knew. I, it, this is where you start getting a new intention. And what you can do, and this is where it gets really fun, is to do a history of political thought that is itself focused on the history of the Cambridge School and the history of these guys. And people are starting to write this kind of stuff now. You know, who was Pocock talking to when he was writing all of that stuff? What was he up to? And you know. What was Skinner up to? And, and did they write letters to each other? And can we find them? And you can, you can play the whole game again. Uh, yeah. But why shouldn't you? If you really want to understand if someone is interested in it for the history, isn't the way that you would come to understand that by following something like the methodology that Pocock lays out? You know, to understand what his real intentions were and whether he viewed these historical analyses as political actions or as purely historical. Wouldn't you have to look at all of the terms and wouldn't you have to play that whole game? It's an argument in some ways for the method that the only way people can think of to evaluate whether or not Pocock is just doing history or is doing politics is by themselves applying his historical method to him. And I think in that regard, you know, it's, it's a big win for, for those guys that that is the way, the principal way in which people who want to study their contributions feel compelled to study them. But it remains to be seen whether this stuff will ultimately stand the test of time. History as a discipline is in a lot of trouble right now in a lot of places. It's shrinking. The undergraduate enrollment numbers are shrinking. And a Research model that requires large numbers of highly specialized people tends to struggle in an environment where departments are getting smaller and they want someone who can teach a broad range of things and someone who can re, uh, supervise a very wide range of different kinds of dissertations because they are not intending for the overall amount of work to be as uh, of scholarly work to be as voluminous. They don't intend for nearly as many people to go into the field. Uh, this this method works great in an environment where there is robust support for history as a discipline and there's lots of PhD places and lots of academic jobs, it starts to become strained if those things dry up. And so we'll have to see as time goes on whether history will be able to, to stay large enough and big enough. And it may be the case that there are some countries where it grows and thrives and where this kind of thing happens and other places where it doesn't happen. Even if it were to die in the Anglosphere, if in universities and other parts of the world, they took up these methods and followed them, we could get very rich uh, histories of, of ideas from other parts of the world. And maybe that's how it will happen. Maybe universities and other places will choose to take an interest in these things, uh, even if there is some, some great dying down of interest in the Anglosphere. Maybe the global history of political thought will be led by people from the, those contexts themselves and not from out here. We'll have to see. I wonder if it would be cool to just read the same, all the sources that Pocock read, but force yourself to intend conservative, liberal, Republican, different interpretations. 
and then just see, let the reader decide which one is most convincing, which arrangement of the evidence. I don't know. It's a historical question, historiography. Yeah. Well, I think it's very difficult for one person to do all that in their mind, but that's part of the value in having so many different readings of these texts. You know, if you go to uh, you know, a university like Cambridge and you do the history of political thought undergraduate papers, there's wonderful secondary literature lists, which include lots and lots of different interpretations that do come from these different perspectives. Instead of asking one person to write three different interpretations, you get a Marxist to read yeah, one of these texts and they give you their interpretation and you get a liberal to read one of these texts and they give you theirs and you get a conservative to read it and they give you theirs and, and you can read each of those and then then you can decide what you think. Uh, but of course, nothing replaces reading all of the texts yourself and going to those archives yourself and getting immersed. As, as good as the secondary literature is, it's not the same as going and doing all of this yourself. And there's a rigor to this. You know, this method wants people who really love history for its own sake, and it intends to scare off people who are only interested in using it to achieve some other purpose or end. It wants those people not in history and in some other discipline or outside the academy. So it's very happy to scare you off if, if what it's doing sounds like too much work to you. I suppose it scares you off because you're more syncretic or not? Oh, that's a fun question. Where do I fit into all of this? Oh, geez. Maybe it's too well, invasive. We can cut it out. No, it's good for you to ask that question. It's also good for me to not answer it because we're over an hour in. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I would be happy to discuss it at some other point, but I. it would be hard to do that and feel like we were still on, on Pocock's episode. You know, at that point, you're starting to talk about my own political projects and and my own academic work and what it all is. Maybe someday we'll do that. I mean, we've done some episodes a little bit on my PhD a while back, if, if listeners are interested on my PhD thesis. But uh, yeah, at some point we could do a, another episode on what I've been up to lately and, and what, it, what it does and where it fits in methodologically. But it, that's a great question. It's a question I should answer, but we don't have time. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Okay,